Hi, welcome to the Neuromantics. My name is Sophie Scott. And I am Will Eves. And we in the Neuromantics are a neuroscientist and a novelist and poet, Will Eves, and I are going to talk about communication and brains and art. And we've each given each other something to read and we're going to talk about how that works. And this week we're going a bit of a tangent to the normal sort of poem, drama, stroke scientific journal. We've got a scientific paper, but we're angling it towards music this time, and particularly towards the mystery of pitch and timbre, uh, and how we arrange those things, how we think we perceive them, and the sort of abstract mechanisms we use to denote them as well. Sophie, do you want to sort of start off by sort of summarising this quite complex (laughs) paper. (laughs) So um, I've given you a paper called What Are Musical Pitch and Timbre by a scientist called Balzano, which was published in 1986. And I chose it because for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a paper I'm very fond of. It's a paper I read when I was an undergraduate and it absolutely just grabbed my attention. It's something, it's beautifully written and he, he comes to it and says at the start, I'm interested in the psychology of how we hear pitch and timbre, but I'm also interested in this as a musician. So he, he's writing it with an eye in both directions. And what he's basically doing is saying, and he's writing the 1980s when computer music and, and really pretty much much of our, our beliefs about how humans process musical sounds was associated with Fourier transform, which is a mathematical way of dealing with waveforms. And it was promoted by Helmholtz, although I think not originally suggested by Helmholtz. And Helmholtz suggested that the human ear or the mammal ear does something like a Fourier transform to decompose a waveform into the waves. You, the idea is you can decompose any complex waveform into regular So it's basically patterns. how you get from electromagnetism, you know, wave pressure on the ear, to the perception of sound. But that's certainly that. The, the classic Helmholtz idea is that's what you're doing, and what you're and you're sort of applying this mathematical procedure to pick up these underlying constants, these mathematical constants that are giving you the sound. So, and they are to do with reciprocal coordinates, exactly in different kinds of space. And one of the main ideas in this, from a classic kind of Helmholtz position, is that the the longest waveform in a sound, that's what gives you the pitch. And then the timbre from this position is to do with the kind of the, the, the distribution of the harmonics, which are still kind of in the same, have a similar mathematical relationship to the fundamental frequency, but will change depending on the instrument. And then he says, it can't be that. It can't work that way. It can't be that simple. So we know that actually pitch isn't just based on that fundamental frequency. It's called the, the longest frequency. And timbre isn't just to do with the harmonics. So timbre is very driven, for example, by things that happen at the onset of a sound. Like and the plosive. Exactly, the, yeah. these very transient things, or exactly how a sound is played. So a stringed instrument has a slow onset and a blown instrument tends to have a much more percussive onset. And that can interact with the harmonics. So one of the things that makes a bell sound like a bell is that all the harmonics kind of start at the, st- at the beginning when the bell is struck and then they decay at different rates. Yeah. So that sort of ringing quality is to do with that. But it's still to do with not just the harmonics, but how they change and how they start. So timbre, he says, is intimately connected with how the sound is made, the bodies of the sound and how this, you know, so he describes pounding and sliding and rubbing and all the different ways you could move things to get a sound out of something. That gives you a lot of the sense of the timbre. Now that I get, and I and I thought that was very interesting, and, it, and actually it makes sense at uh, you know a, a very reasonable and, and rational level that 
Well, part of what he's saying is that it's the, the distinction between pitch and timbre is more slippery than the Fourier analysis would really have you believe. Pitch is, as you say, this fundamental frequency, but it's obviously closely related to timbre in the sense that it is that frequency that then has to propagate itself in various ways in order to become, over time, timbre. Timbre is something that manifests more obviously in time than pitch. And the problem then with the Fourier analysis of these two things is that actually it doesn't give you a very clear way of describing the way time operates in music more generally. Because if you are saying that the difference between pitch and timbre is essentially a kind of temporal relation, then what do you do actually about the way a a melody or harmony moves? How do you categorise a succession of notes in Fourier analysis? It doesn't quite make sense. The whole thing begins to collapse and get rather vague. Because, of course, the essence of music is time, actually. One of the things I love about sound is it makes... You can only have sounds as they evolve over time. You can't take a photograph of a sound. And, I mean, obviously, most visual scenes contain things that are moving, which is lost as soon as you have a static frame from that. But you still could have that static frame and get some information from it. And actually, with the sound, all of it is evolving over time. Mm. So all of sound is dynamic. And the thing that I now sort of think about, and is really rooted in this Belzano argument, is that, in fact, all sounds only exist because something happened you hear something it means something somewhere happened in the world even loudspeakers have got moving parts so sound is always a thing occurring in the world and if there was no humans on earth for example or no animals at all on earth there would still be some sounds from you know the, yeah. the wa- waves on the beach and the you know wind blowing around uh, this is rocks, very important yeah. this is very important because actually it it gets to something that i think he doesn't quite pin down which is that it is possible to understand pitch as a purely abstract relation okay as a whether you whether you do it in terms of temperament and ratios or you know the the lengths of the string that that kind of mathematical mm. uh, symbology that that's that's perfectly possible to understand it abstractly it is much more difficult to understand timbre abstractly. And the sort of proof of this, a simple proof, is that you can notate pitch. That's what notes on the scale do. But it's very difficult to notate timbre. You have yeah. to have some much less universal way of writing into a score, play with the edge of the bow, yeah. or, you know, this should be Sforzando, or whatever it might be. It's much harder to codify for that. And I think that's because it becomes... It's part of the dynamic. Yeah, it's embodied in the actual world. Yeah. I think the the classic example of the definition of timbre when I was an undergraduate was that which makes two sounds sound different if they're playing the same note yes yeah. <laughs> everything else yeah. in addition to pitch yeah but even that he says if you go down a piano keyboard from a very low note to a very high note the timbre changes along with the pitch the timbre yeah. of the piano is not the same across that range and it's it's we're sort of exactly like you say because we can have a complete or feel like we have a completely abstract description of pitch it seems to trick us into thinking that everything will be that easily codified and it's it really isn't and we're still not and this is 30 something years later i am still working in a similar area and we are no better at getting a handle on 
exactly what we mean by that relationship between objects well, the and very, sounds. He, he invokes this at, at one point quite early on, but doesn't really doesn't go into it, although I think he could... Actually, it would have been useful if he'd done this. So in early 20th century music, it, you know, the, sort of the godfather of serialism, Schoenberg, comes up with... It's not just him, it's a bit more complicated than this, but this idea of Klangfarben melody. And what that translates as is sound, colour, melody. What he's getting at is it's the description of this is that you have a melody and you can have a melody that's assigned just to one instrument, okay, and then it's just a unitary thing. You get a piano playing a tune or an oboe playing a tune. But Klangfarben melody says, no, actually, the timbre of the note in different instruments is really, really important to the melody. And that's actually what makes a more interesting musical experience. Mm. So you split the melody up almost note by note between different instruments in the orchestra. And that is Klangfarben melody. So that rather than having it as a unitary thing that's played just by the violins or the wind section, it goes to many, many different sort of familial groupings and individual instruments. It's a very satisfying but testing auditory experience. Yeah. Because the the sort of abstract relation between the pitches is as it was, but your dynamic experience of it as sound colour is extremely different. And it's sometimes quite difficult to trace that experience, to, to pick out mm. the melody from those different colours. So the colour can be something like a kind of... It can become a sort of colour field, yeah. you know, in which the object, the melody, is more difficult to discern. We don't think of it this way ever, but actually a lot of what's going on with speech sounds is a continual changing palette of timbre. If I go A-E-I-O-U-R-U-E, I'm keeping the pitch of my voice the same, and I'm changing the timbre of my voice. It's literally what different phonemes are, different kinds of sounds being made on that same basic vibration. And we would never characterise it as a timbral shift or something changed, but it's actually, that's precisely what you have to do. To, it's like central to speech. Yes. Is this sense of timbre. So I think one of the things I like about this paper, and I do accept it's a, it's a snapshot and it's very much of its time. You know, I think a lot of what he says about Fourier transform probably people would not be as wedded to now. But I think the idea that you need, you need a dirtier explanation, it's, it's, it has to be embodied somehow in the, the nature of the sounds themselves, and that actually it's probably not just music, that's, that's noise, that's what maybe the kind of one of the ways that sound connects us to our environment is that sense of being around the things happening. It's interesting if you talk to people who, you know, if you think of people losing their hearing well, and how awful it would be to have difficulty speaking to each other and how difficult it would be to, to not have music, mm. but also not knowing when things are made of sound. So I spoke to one woman, I was working with one woman who'd had a cochlear implant fitted after years of gradually losing her hearing, and her hearing got much worse than she'd realised it was. So she, with the cochlear implant and it was turned on, the first time she went into the garden, she was like, what's going on, what's going on? And she did completely forgotten about birdsong. The, the, gar- the garden was this riot of noise that mm. probably most people wouldn't experience as noise. Mm. Just, uh, and the other, when um, her phone started ringing, she went and got a neighbour. Like, there's something going on in my house and I don't know what it... Mm. So the, the sort of shock of that. 
It's it's also a sh- it's a shock about sort of depth perception. One of the things that's in- interesting in this piece is that really sound production is about friction. So, you know, at a at a, fi- at a physical level, resistance yeah. to something. Yeah. The distance between the background and the loud noise. That's why the woman who suddenly hears the mobile phone is sort of so discombobulated because it's she's naturalised a kind of low level plane of mm. silence or minimal sound, and suddenly she's got this thing peaking and leaping out at her. And what's interesting is the way we can normalise different planes of sound. We can get used to either quite high decibel level sound or we can get used to very, very little. But when there's dramatic change, it's actually emotionally frightening. It's difficult for people. There's a very good story by Ian Forster called The Machine Stops, where people are suddenly, all the electrics of their environment stop the fridge hum goes everything and a lot of people sort of throw themselves out of windows because they can't bear the silence yeah they've not encountered silence before yeah oh yes and you you hardly ever do there's there's noise all around you and in fact what you've just said is really interesting because one of the very weird things about hearing compared to say vision so your vision continuously adapts to the light levels around you if you go into a really dark room you'll have had that experience of slowly you start to see shapes in the dark and in fact you're vision continues to adapt to that over hours your mm. hearing does not you can go from the quietest sound to the loudest sound back down to the quietest sound all the time the dynamic range is always there all mm. the time for hearing so it's like the expectation is for there to be sound oh, and for this and for exactly like you say that con- the, the context can be very absolutely huge and of course in the real world it can be you know that a, a sound can be there and then go Visual things tend not to pop into our space and then disappear again. Sounds do it all the time. Yes, that's and you're very set good. Up so you so you sort of you're set up to have a very very broad interpretative palette, yes. as it were, yeah. for sound, tiny or huge. Yeah. But to use that analogy, but in visual processing, you're sort of mixing gradually. Yes, and quite slowly and very much. I mean, your your eyes are incredibly good. You know, you've seen people's pupils change depending on mm. the ambient light, but the actual chemical nature of what's going on in the retina also adapts, which is why, you know, a dark adapted mm. eye, if you then go out into the, into the sunshine, you know, it's painful how, how bright everything is. And that pain is your eye desperately trying to readapt mm. back in the opposite direction because it's continuously mm. varying and your hearing doesn't do this. Shakespeare has a lovely line about just that, actually, in one of the sonnets, brightly dark in dark directed. The other thing that I like about this paper, and I will stop saying things I like because I know it's not perfect, but the other thing he says is the fundamental frequency aspect of pitch. Well, A, that can't be right because, in fact, if you have harmonic information, so any complex sound, you can actually remove the fundamental frequency and Mm. people still hear it as being there. And you can also drive pitch by changing spectral characteristics. So you don't need to have a... You can have a a completely noisy signal like this with a very low pitch. So what Balzano says is that pitch isn't just the fundamental frequency, and we now know that very well. So the pitch can be associated with spectral characteristics. So a completely noisy sound like this can have a very low pitch or a very high pitch. And I'm just shaping that by how I move my articulators. And it's not particularly delightful. You perhaps wouldn't listen to music like that, mm. but you could hear the pitch varying. And in fact, you can even do it with like a by sort of introducing repetitions into sound very quickly. You very immediately get a pitch, and there's no fundamental frequency there, but you get a sense of pitch. So 
we often think of pitch as being like an elemental aspect of sounds, but actually pitch is something we compute. And as far as I can see, it shares a lot of commonalities with colour from a brain perspective, in that colour you compute over multiple properties of a visual mm. piece of information. It's not just the light frequencies that are reflected, it's the shade around it, it's the orientation. You you will add in a lot, a lot of visual tricks. What, all that stuff about whether or not the dress was blue or black and or gold and white, yeah, you yeah, hashtag yeah. the dress. Um, the, the reason why people saw different things there was because their visual systems make assumptions about the surrounding illumination of that. So that's just a very strong example of it. But actually, we do we do something quite similar with pitch. So it's this, it's a computation, and you can trick it. You can trick it in a number of ways. But I think the other thing that Balzano said that I really liked was that it's not enough on its own. It doesn't matter for sound to have a pitch because the pitch has to change. And actually, certainly for music, the structure of a scale and the kind of the intervals between mm. notes in a scale and how that's arranged is as important for you know, any use of that music, any of that that pitch change. And that Fourier transform won't get you that no. either. So there's a, there's a long section which is very interesting about the inherent properties of the scale and pitch relations of note to note and things that are, you know, things that seem to belong to very many different anthropological sort of areas and ethnicities of music, like the diatonic scale, the pentatonic scale, um, the circle of fifths. So they, there are these proportional truths that exist in music that seem to cut across cultures and ethnicities. Mm. Circle of Fifths, beloved of you know jazz composers, trying to get from sort of you know one key to another. <laughs> but this thing about pitch having within it implications that are very very diverse and coming back to the same note is a profound and important thing. It's often repre- it's represented in this paper as a circle. Mm. This is one of his kind of spatial spatial metaphors for getting at how pitch operates in terms of its relations to other sounds. So the the circle, to give an idea of what that means, it's not too abstract. God, let's see if I can get this right. So a circle of it's it's here's how you get back to the one note, Mm. the tonic note, using the circle of fifths. La di da di ma ba ba ba. So that cycle, which is done by going a perfect fifth from one note to the next, or in its inverse relation, a perfect fourth, which is what happens about halfway through that sequence, brings you back in the end to the same root note. So one of the things about, the lovely things about music is that a lot is implied in a single note. Yeah. Okay. And that's part of what you're saying about pitch. Yeah. It's also, of course, of what a lot of polyphony says. Because we think of music as being something that develops, you know, you've got sort of harmonic and melodic relations and you have a little tune, then you think about what does that mean about where it goes harmonically. I'll add a little bit more, there'll be another little chord change, and then we'll, you know, it'll develop. It'll be a developing thing. But actually, what a lot of Baroque composers and a lot of polyphony is based upon is the implication of the single relation, is the implication of actually one thing, how rich mm. that one thing can be. And Schoenberg says of counterpoint and fugue that it's not really development. Everyone says, oh, fugal development, oh, you know, sonatas. He says, well, actually, in counterpoint, it seems to be classically these things of two lines against each other. But actually, it's not really a development. It's an unravelling. 
and that what you have in fugue and polyphony is an unravelling of implications and that this is the source of his interest I think in microtonality mm. is that really what you're trying to pick apart is almost one note yeah and I think that's I mean I find that very attractive yes it's testing but it's it's sort of lovely and it slightly cuts against our you know our, our common idea of everything in time going in one direction yeah. because he's saying that actually there are two metaphors for the way time works one is that it's linear and it's an arrow and that's how we tend to think of music but even more important I think mm. and and this has some bearing obviously on what we're doing neuroscientifically and cognitively is it's a circle yes and the cyclical relation in human experience is extremely significant because without it we wouldn't understand what a season is and it's even possible that I think our cyclical relationship to time and to sound predates our linear grasp of it because the linear grasp is to do with history yeah and that comes later. It was very interesting when um, I had a PhD student who did several studies working with the Himba in northern Namibia. I think I was probably lecturing you about them last week. But one of the things that's very, very interesting about them is they have no age. It's meaningless to collect age data from them. You can't have a control group back in England at the same age because they are you're a child, you hit adolescence, and then you're treated as a grown-up. And then if you're a woman at some point you'll go through menopause and that's yeah. about it yeah <laughs> you know so, so it's all to do with ar- or older yeah so yeah. it's all to do with archetypal yeah stages yes exactly and and the year has some sort of general shape to it but not that kind of you, you know it's it, it it's not that it doesn't have a cycle but you're not sort of prioritizing that as some sort of thing that starts here and ends over there which exactly yeah. like you say Which brings us, I think, yes. to our, our literary excerpt this week, which says just this about art music, interestingly. And it's an essay by W.H. Auden, notational essay. In itself, it's a bit of a score, because it's made up of little fragments of sort of aphoristic things and then critical paragraphs called Notes on Music and Opera yeah. in the Dyer's Hand. And one of the important things he says is that our whole relationship to music is unrealistic and that particularly in opera we are dealing with a world of sonic archetypes and archetypal situations though he doesn't quite say this it's implied tonal relationships actually they they have some kind of their archetypes rather than or or their archetypes as well as realist real things that happen in the world yeah so it doesn't really make any sense to talk about realistic drama on the musical stage because people don't sing when they're feeling sensible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's something very, very powerful about that. He, and he actually has a specific thing to say about it in terms of artifice, which, which I think is lovely. The paradox implicit in all drama, namely that emotions and situations which in real life would be sad or painful are on the stage a source of pleasure, becomes in opera quite explicit. The singer may be playing the role of a deserted bride who is about to kill herself, but we feel quite certain as we listen that not only we, but also she, is having a wonderful time. In a sense, there can be no tragic opera, 
because whatever errors the characters make and whatever they suffer, they are doing exactly what they wish. Hence the feeling that opera seria should not employ a contemporary subject, but confine itself to mythical situations, that is, situations which, as human beings, we all of us are necessarily in, and must therefore accept, however tragic they may be. And I like that sort of Mm. idea, that sound in music is transporting you from a realistic environment to the mythic environment but it's not doing it because it's really an aesthetically complex or wonderful thing to do or artistically fancy it's doing it because that's just actually what music does yeah i love the idea that it was there's something kind of joyful in the sense of enjoyable about about voice and it's well, it's about singing particularly singing there's quite a lot of papers now showing not only do birds I mean, bird song sounds delightful, but birds are largely singing for reasons of sort of territory or, you know, the gentleman bird is going, hello, ladies, I'm available. And then his, the lady bird brother partnership is going, uh, no, he's not. You know, so it tends to be quite, it's quite basic and it's quite stressful for them. Yeah. You know, it, it is exhausting and it's the equivalent really of front, you know, or frequently of sort of, you know, a proper display of aggression. Yeah. It's very rarely that for us. It's there's something kind of, I was trying to describe this, and I, I still haven't got, I haven't got good words for this, but I really enjoy kind of soul singing, and particularly male soul singers when they kind of jump into falsetto head voice and then just soar off, and it tends to happen a lot in Philly soul records, which yeah, I'm a yeah. great fan of. It, it just that sounds like something set free. Yeah, yeah. Just pure delight. I can, I'm sailing up here, I'm, and it, it's like a, a sort of the equivalent of some you know majestic sea mammals breaching the water and flying through the air and crashing back down it's that kind of look at just splendour in doing it it's amazing isn't it and, and Auden has a little thing about that about this this high pitch and freedom yes. because he says that it, I think it's one of the most interesting things he says it's to do with our perception of gravity yeah and, and that he thinks that for the human voice high pitch and rising up into a falsetto, it's always about the effort to transcend yeah. your body and reaching up, which I think is, is, is very attractive. Yeah. Whereas in the visual fields, he says, when you're talking about, you, you tend to prioritise your sense of greatest transcendence is actually in the lower part of the picture. I can't quite remember why he says that. It's because he thinks... Is it because it's near to you? It might be near... Yes, I think it is. Foreshortening of perspective. In visual space, it is the bottom of the picture which is felt as the region of greatest pressure. And as as the eye rises up the picture, it feels an increasing sense of lightness and freedom. I think that's very... It's it's persuasive, isn't it? So on one hand, sound is really embodied and it's a physical thing. And of course, that's applying to voices as much as anything else that we can do to make a noise. But there are some weird tricks about the human voice. So, for example, you get much greater dimorphism between adult male and adult female voices than you do in bodies. And there is sexual dimorphism, obviously, in bodies, you know, Mm. men are taller and stronger. One of the consequences of boys' voices breaking in adolescence is they get this bigger sounding voice and I'm using bigger in a very loose possible sense but you know there's a longer vocal tract bigger vocal folds Mm. bigger spectral range lower pitches but also because it's starting low it has more top end so there, there remains real controversy about whether or not women have falsetto 
head voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, falsetto is obviously stupid. All you're doing in falsetto is you're bringing the vocal folds together and you vibrate them twice as fast. Yeah. So you're just literally kicking up a gear. So everything goes up a pitch, up an octave, basically, because you're doing everything twice as quickly. And it's quite, you need quite a lot of strength to do that. And there are occasional descriptions of something that looks like it could be that in women's adult voices, but it's extremely commonplace in men's singing. It's a, mm. it's a very normal thing to do. And it's as if, particularly actually for the male voice, there's an interesting level of sort of display and artifice about it. I mean, all voices are artificial in that... Uh, they can mislead people. You can sound very different from what you look like. It's not unusual for people that have heard me on the radio to assume that I'm much, much younger than I am, which, of course, let's all pretend I am. <laughs> but, so that's there. So it's a weird combination. All voices are a weird combination of being... They can be very unrelated to what your manifest actual Physical body is like. Is, yeah. But they can also be very truthy. They can be, you know, if you're frightened or you're anxious or you're angry, that will be there in your voice. If you like the person you're talking to, it will be there in your voice. But then there's this whole And actually, thing. interestingly, there at the level of timbre. Yes, 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 yes. Pitch. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And then you've got this whole other thing about the the kind of, you know, because the, the things we can do with our voices and where they can go. And that actually of... The two amazing voices, male and female voices, are all absolutely spectacular. But this, the reason why you have this secondary descent of the larynx that are giving men this different voice with this greater range, that it, maybe I'll, sometimes you, you know, there are so many different theories about why this could be. But it, I think it's interesting that it's even more of an artifact. It's a, th- you know, it's a different thing. It, your men are being even more freed up from their bodies in their voices. It is interesting. I mean, I wonder whether this is possibly just too obvious to be to be true, but one wonders evolutionarily whether that apparently greater range of capacity, whether there isn't a simple kind of courtship involvement there, that the male with the greatest range in our pre-aesthetic yeah. age where appearance probably wasn't as important as, as you know, the manifold mm. of physical capacities, whether having a greater range of sound would not have been associatively important because it would suggest capacity. It could even just be, I sometimes wonder, it's simply aesthetically pleasing. It's delightful, mm. it's wonderful. So there is a... Yeah, to, yeah. so maybe the aesthetics were involved, but I mean... But, you know, and it doesn't have to... Be, it, it's not saying that, you know, I think sexual selection in its broadest sense... There are clearly things that around us that have been selected for in that way. So we have selected for hairlessness in women, which is why both men and women are less hairy, because mm. <laughs> actually the way humans work, you can't have something expressed in one sex yeah. and not to be expressed quite a lot in the other sex. And I sometimes think we are, certainly in evolutionary psychology, we're very keen to say, well, so historically quite often people have said, well, the bigger voice makes men more competitive. It, it could, but actually their voices also go really, really high. Yeah, yeah. And that's, what's that, you know? Yeah. So I think um, it's almost certainly not just one thing. And I think it's interesting that, you know, people do, we do find voices attractive. So I think that range is would be important because I said just earlier that, I, you know, I thought maybe that it meant it would be impressive in terms of sexual selection because of capacity. But actually slightly what I meant was that I think it, Range will equate to adaptability, versatility. Mm. I have a number of tools, I have a number of things I can do. You know, that would be presumably very important. And I think there's, we don't often take this, I think, enough on the chin, and certainly in my discipline, just like the 
the flexibility of the voice as a tool for making sounds of different kinds and the range and the modifications we can do to it. We don't normally think of the human voice as being the most complex musical instrument in nature, but it is. Yeah, and, and I think that this, this notion of concealing different things is sort of important. It's implied in that business of unravelling something from a note, but also the way you know hominids probably used sound in our early origins because mm. you know on the one hand there's some sense of the choral ode i think i've said this before it starts from hominids grouping together and making a sound more or less in unison mm. so that the group sounds like one big creature yeah. to ward off predators but actually there's an important thing there which is that the group is not one big sound it's many individuals making the sound and within that group, you can pick out an element, as it were, and it sneaks round the back and turns out to have a specialisation, which is a sort of metaphor for the whole of human development. Yes. This thing that <laughs> seems to be doing the same thing as everyone else actually has the capacity to do something very different yeah. and, you know, and, and hunt you, stab you, outwit you, yeah. do what you will. So in the musical note that is, has a protective mechanism, that contains all the variety of tool-making and specialisation that comes after, and all of it is wrapped up in one note. Mm. I've sort of not put that very elegantly. No. But I think that the, you see there how music is bound up with the leap from doing one thing to doing many things. I was doing my PhD I wanted to know and I wasn't doing a PhD on this and I've never managed to find a way of looking at it but I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationship between like thinking about that one note what's the, what's the relationship between like your speaking voice and your singing voice you know is, is the speaking voice like almost glimpsed in that speaking voice or is it an entirely different beast that could come in from nowhere well um it's no, they're, they're very closely related, and, and and actually, well, they're as closely or as distantly related as you want them to be. But I mean, there are there are certain there, you know there are lots of conventions yeah. in singing, and Auden raises this here, where you want, because singing is not a sensible thing to do, where you want to represent something that is absolutely conversational and perfunctory, you have to have a convention for doing it, yeah. and that is basically speech song, yeah, you know, which is which starts out. Well, it starts out in really in chant in sort of early early music, and then it becomes you know in opera restitivo secco where you know you you get lots of sort of plot exposition from people rattling through. It's a sort of melody, but it's very dry and it sort of just moves through the notes very quickly. And that's much more like conversational mm. speech. And then it becomes important again. You know, I think in the twentieth century in Kurt Weill, and you, you, it's it's it crops up again and again this relationship between the spoken and the sung yeah and it's mysterious and wonderful because it, and it's in rap obviously yes. you know it's kind of it's it, in in the post 60s r&b it's absolutely fundamental but that's not to say that then melody and you know absolutely obviously sung words don't have semantic content or a, or a message it's just that it's it's sort of arranged rather differently I mean I think this comes to something that I'm interested in which is that music absolutely has meaning mm -hmm. but it's not language yeah one of the sort of little proofs of this is that 
an ordinanciousness is that you can quite often in song you can put nonsense syllables to the notes and not many people notice the difference (laughs) you know a, a common sort of thing people say about pop music is oh it's really mad that we're not listening to the lyrics anyway <laughs> you'd notice if the lyrics weren't there yeah of course yeah one of the things i was i liked about his point about the kind of um the emotional interpretation of what that sung voice is doing and he says compared to like a film if you've got two unlikely individuals singing an opera about mismatched lovers or something it would mean something different than if you showed them on the screen yeah and s- told a story about what was happening bigger screen is so literal it's, yeah and there's something so sort of simultaneously highly emotional but also very generous about song that means you will suspend all sorts of aspects yeah. of, and again also, I, I, lots of aspects of judgment i love that thing he says about it. it's just as credible that a stupid person should sing beautifully yeah. as it is that a sort of intelligent one so it's a sort yeah. of it's weirdly democratic, actually. It is. It's the only instrument we're all born with and pretty much everybody has access to. And then we kind of gussy it up and make people feel stressed about it. And But actually, it's one of the more simply enjoyable things to do is just to sing. Yeah. It's. I think it's interesting. We live in an environment now where like, we have a lot of access to recorded music. That's incredibly recent from the vast majority of human evolution and humans on Earth. Music was something that happened right in front of you, uh, or you were doing it. The singing was something that happened in front of you, or you were doing it. And it might be the same person singing again, or you singing again, but it would never have the same, you wouldn't be a recorded thing. You'd never hear the same thing twice. Mm. You know, if it, if it wasn't happening, then you couldn't hear it. It's, it sounds stupid, mm. but in fact, there's a huge difference to be able to go off and say, right now, I would like to listen to the Detroit Spinners. I can go and find it, yeah. and, it will, and that will be. And there's. But even in that context, we like to see people perform live. We like to be in front of the yeah. person doing it. And I think there's something about that, the voices and performance and it happening in front of you, the, the skill and the beauty and the emotion of that. So I think the only time when we... Do you remember a couple of years ago, we did that thing at the Royal Society about voices mm. and we had lots of different people coming in to do stuff and lots of singers. And we had an opera singer who was just when she sang at you, it was extraordinary, it was beautiful, but it was also a bit like some great natural phenomenon breaking over your head because mm. it was just this incredible sound, like every bit of me was being filled up with the noise she was making. It was yeah. incredible. And then I don't know, this man just turned up and started singing the, the, the a Requiem. I think it was a foray requiem was that Possibly. and it was just ridiculously good it's just this man just, I'm just and i'm sure he was a singer but it was just suddenly this thing came out of him and i was almost in tears it was extraordinary yeah. and it's just, there's something about it i think one of the kind of really simple things about music and and the human voice and song is that it's it's a reminder of life um, actually, uh, it, it's it's a much it's a much better indication of living presence mm. than speech, which is easier to simulate. I mean, in a, you know, in in an age of you know technological you know simulacra, it's quite simple mm. to do that. But actually, electronic simulations of the voice, I think, are still pretty sound, pretty primitive. We know when something's vocoded. Yeah. We know when it's a sort of an electronic approximation of a voice. It's yeah. now we've learnt very quickly to distinguish the authentic performance from the auto-tuned 
version. They're very, very clear to us. We've got very good, and very quickly, yeah. it seems to me, at, at spotting the electronic fakes. Yeah. And that's interesting. So actual song says something about... It's like the bit of graffiti that says, I was here. Yeah. That's really what it says. It's a kind of mark-making yeah. in an indisputable way. And part of what the scientific paper about is actually how can electronic music get back to this way of producing timbres that are indisputably new and real without them also being part of the human repertoire. Yeah. You know, and it's an open question. Yeah. He's got various interesting ways of thinking, well, it must be possible. But we're still not great at doing it. Certainly not at the level of song. At no, the level of it's instruments, it's much, you know, we've got more sophisticated, but at the level of song, it's hard. See, it's really interesting what happened with instruments for a long time. So when he was writing, it was all about synthesis. And now what we do is we sample. And if I talk to Siri, Siri gives me back quite a convincing voice, but that's because it's based on a real human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the impressions... not that convincing, though, is No, it's it? not that convincing. It's no. still, obviously, dots really somebody there, but it, no one bothered synthesising that voice. They taken a real voice yeah, and, and then they work with that mm. and we recently did a grant application about this and we didn't get it but somebody pointed out you can go and watch a Pixar film and everything went to see the new Toy Story everything on the screen has been computer generated mm. every sound you hear is it's real. human yes human so interesting. or it's foley and actually one of the reasons that just thinking about one of the reasons Siri isn't ever quite authentic and the sample isn't quite authentic is because you're dealing with small discrete units what happens when you break the voice up into those sort of phonemes? I'm not sure if I've used the right word there. Precisely correct. And then you string them together to produce whatever she wants to say in a yeah. different situation. The parts, the number of parts, don't imply the whole. That's why it sounds slightly inauthentic. And it is... So I was taught when I was uh, you know, an undergraduate, and again, going back to the kind of Belzano's argument that we have this sort of simplistic view, but it cannot work for perception that you were kind of hearing speech and then you find phonemes and then you kind of organise that into words and then you interpret that. But in fact, exactly how you say phonemes varies completely depending on what you're actually saying. So you yeah. can do things like, you know, if I said, oh, Will, where have we got to be for this next meeting? And you went, I don't know. Um, that would mean something different than if you went, I do not know. You don't yeah. actually have to sound angry for very clear pronunciation to sound like stop asking me that question yeah. but even down to you can um, you'll change phonemes depending on you know so classically um, if I say hang on led or let the phoneme at the end of those two words is different but actually the L sounds at the, diff- at the start are also different because I'm anticipating yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. but that varies with syntax with grammar so I can say I am going or I'm going but I can also and very commonly people say I'm going so it's yeah. actually ungoing. I can't say I'm green. I'd say I'm green. Yes. So actually, there's a huge amount of information in that surface form of the phonemes yes. that impacts completely on your pr- pragmatic, semantic, syntactic interpretation of what is being said to you all the time. So again, you, like, I think that we've then, come back to the note, yeah, haven't we? we? Have. The we've one, come back. the unit, the unit, and its surface form 
you cannot throw it away. And yeah. I think classically in linguistics, we've always sort of assumed you can abstract away to some higher mm. meaning and get rid of that stuff at the mm. front end. But actually, the stuff at the front end is completely mm. rich with all this information, like what made the sound, what does it mean, that is telling you a great deal of all the stuff you'd normally think would be happening John, later. In semantics, John Searle will call that the background. Yeah. yeah. The thing that all the things that are happening that actually give you know meaning to a word. So, the unit, the phoneme the note, the unravelling, the attack on the frequency. These are... Children, these are the things we've been looking at today. Yes. <laughs> uh, Fascinating. Um, one, say one last thing, which is not where I thought we... Because we didn't go with this where I thought we were going to go. But something we were talking about last time was emotion. And you correctly didn't like a lot of how emotion was being described in the cognitive neuroscience paper because it felt like it wasn't even getting close to the complexity of what you would expect that to entail. And I think that this is also one of the things that's happening here because we get very caught up in words and jargon in science. And you said something very true, which is that one of the problems with jargon is it it feels like you're using very precise terminology, but in fact you can be hiding your meaning from the person reading or person listening, but you also hide it from yourself. Mm. So I think we often do that with when we use the same word, same science, to, to, for the thing that evokes the emotion and the emotion that you experience. But I think that's also true here with what our musical pitch and timbre. You start off with these things that feel like, well, we've got nice words that describe these things that must be very different. Mm. And... You could have a whole career working in sort of psychology and cognitive neuroscience and for very few people to pick you up on that. But actually, what he's been saying, you know, and, and it has not really changed over the next sort of three and a half decades, is that what you've got here is something where just because you can use the terminology doesn't mean that you actually have a meaningfully clear distinction. Yeah. Or it's, yeah. it's muddier than that. And you, you yourself, if you don't query those meanings, can get caught up in a belief yes. that you've understood something you haven't. Yeah, and of course there's no hiding in sound. <laughs> no, there is not. Sound so is very juicy. Sound is um, jargon-free. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At which point? Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Sophie. And thank you to the Royal Literature Society. Society of Literature, even. Society for Literature, <laughs> who very kindly sponsored us. Thank and you. we will be back very soon thank with you. more. This was the sixth episode, I think. I think it was the sixth. So we'll be back with Lucky Seven. <laughs>